Uh, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to um, apologize to any of you who have sent me uh, one of the 37 texts or one of the 300 emails that I got. Uh, I've been uh, in bed with the flu this week, so uh, you will hear from me in, in good time. Don't worry. I talked to my uh, doctor yesterday. He said because I started feeling sick on uh, last uh, on Sunday, uh, he said I'm not contagious at all. I asked him whether I should record this and uh, just put this on video, and he said, "No, you need to suck it up and do your job." <laughs> so if you if you're after a totally uncompassionate doctor, I've got one for you. Uh, but it's good to be with you guys. Uh, make sure you've got uh, Exodus chapter 20 open. Uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we're at with you. Lord, help us to, to understand more of who you are and what you've done for us, but also who we are meant to be in response. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if anyone has asked you the question, what kind of person uh, do you want to be? I've been asked that question a few times. Sometimes it has been at a conference or sometimes it's been a friend or sometimes I've been reading a book and the book has said, so what kind of person do you want to be? And it's always a confronting question because I don't know about you, but it's hard to articulate sometimes. Do I want to be happy or successful or rich or have my kids you know, grow up to be amazing uh, musicians or whatever. What, 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 what do you want to be? But if you're going to ask that question, or if you're going to answer that question, what would your answer be? One of, the, one of the questions I think we need to ask, especially if we follow Jesus, is not who do we want to be or what kind of person do we want to be, but what kind of person does God want you to be? Have you thought about that? What kind of person does God want you to be? And how do you figure that out? Do you go to a course? Do you, uh, do you read a certain book? Do you, what do you do? And here's the thing. The Israelites would have asked this question. What kind of people does God want us to be? We've been saved from Egypt, and now we're kind of wandering around in the Sinai Desert. What kind of people does God want us to be? And how are they going to figure that out? The great thing about the God of the Bible is he has not left us in the dark about the kind of person that he wants us to be or the kind of people that he wanted the Israelites to be. He's going to outline in just a few verses what kind of people the Israelites should be or he wants them to be. Now, one of the things about these words here is they're called the Ten Commandments in popular culture. But can I just say, that's actually kind of a bad translation. Because the Bible never calls them commandments. In fact, the original calls them words. They're ten words from God. Even though your heading says ten commandments, it's not in the Bible. And what you've got to realize back in this day is that a law in the Bible, or the ancient Near East, always had a consequence. And so if you did something wrong, the law would say, if you steal someone's goat, then this is going to happen to you. 
But notice how in the Ten Commandments it doesn't have that. It's just don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. So what's happening here? What's actually happening here is this is part of a covenant, an agreement between God and his people to say, I have done this, so therefore you're going to be that. This is the kind of people that you are going to be. As I said, it's not a bunch of rules. He is a covenant. He is who you should be. And what we've got to realise is this, that this kind of covenant and the rest of the laws in the Bible are very different from the laws that we have today. Our, the way our laws work is it seems like there's all these different laws to make sure that people can't get off on technicalities. Have you ever heard that, you know, you've been reading about someone who went to, you know, went to, uh, before a judge, he's guilty or she is guilty, but they get off on a technicality. There's a loophole in the law. That's not the way it works in the Bible. In the Bible, it's more like it's wisdom. Here is a principle, and the judge, the person is meant to work out from that principle what should happen, right? So you can't just go, well, the Bible says I can't steal my neighbor's goat, but I stole a sheep instead, and that's okay. The whole point is you stole, and therefore we're going to act in certain ways. And so the laws in the Bible are not meant to be comprehensive, but they're meant to say this is the kind of people you should be. When Jesus talks about the laws in the Bible, when he is asked, what are the two greatest, what's the greatest law? It's interesting, he does not say do not. He says here is what you should be. You should be a person who loves the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and you should love your neighbour as yourself. He summarises the the whole law in those two things. And so when we come to these ten words from God which says, you Israelites, here's what you should be, what we've got to realise is that these don'ts are meant to be positive. They're meant to be, don't do this, but actually work out what is the opposite. Well, don't do that, but actually figure out what to do. Do, do this. And so as we come to these words, are you willing to hear what God would have you be? Who he would have you be? And are you willing to get on board with that? We've been going through the book of Exodus, and and the book of Exodus can be kind of uh, summarized uh, into two different kinds of service. There was a a service where the the Israelites were in slavery and serving Pharaoh, and God saved them from that. And for the rest of the book of Exodus, from chapter 20 onwards, we're going to see how God says, you are a people who is meant to serve me from slavery to service. That's the whole book of Exodus. And we start that section where God says, this is how you serve me here in chapter 20. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. First, who is God and what has he done? Second of all, people who love the Lord your God, that's what we're meant to be. 
and people who love your neighbour as yourself. Let's have a look at who is God and what he has done. Have a look at verse 20. Sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Notice what's really important. Our God is a God that speaks. He is a God that makes clear what's on his mind. For the, for the rest of the laws in the Old Testament, it, God speaks to Moses and Moses writes them down. But no, this is God speaking directly to his people. And, and I don't know about you, but I've heard of so many people say, oh, you know, I, I heard God's voice and God spoke to me this morning. In fact, I, I remember going to a church once with some people from my, my previous church. There was a guy named Cohen there at my, at my previous church and he was, he was 21 years old and really blunt and this preacher goes, oh, God spoke to me this morning as I was brushing my teeth. And he went up to him afterwards and he said, um, when God spoke to you when you were brushing your teeth, um, did you stop brushing your teeth? And the guy was like, oh, no. And he's going, oh, what, why do you ask? He goes, because when I read the Bible, when God speaks to someone, they're usually terrified. And that's exactly the same here. Have a look at verse 19. This is the Israelites who were speaking to Moses. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is not, these words from God, if you were there, you would have been terrified. As we saw last week, you know, on top of this mountain, Mount Sinai, there was lightning and thunder. And God is speaking. God is a God that speaks. But also, have a look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God. It's not that he is a God, he is their God. Even though they are terrified of this God, he's not a God from a distance. He has come into relationship with them. And what has he done? He brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God has acted. God has, he took the first step. He was the one who walked across uh, eternity to save his people. God saved them first. And then he says, this is the people I want you to be. He saved them first. And then he said, this is how I want you to live. Chapters 1 to 19 is all about God saving. And then he says, now here is how I want you to live. Now, can I just say, this is so important. Because that's the way God always works. God saves you out of his great love. And then he says, because I have saved you, this is how you should live. If you get that the wrong way around, it will cause profound issues. You'll always be thinking whether the God of the Bible actually cares and loves for you because you'll be thinking, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. But the gospel is not, I obey to be accepted. The gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Once again, if you get that messed up, your Christian life will be messed up. If you are here figuring out where you're at with Jesus, you've got to realize that God calls you first into relationship with him before he asks you to obey him. 
once again, if you get that messed up, your Christian life will be messed up. It's a bit like this. Imagine, imagine when you become a Christian, you, Christianity, your Christianity is kind of like this bag, right? And you get a bag, and then you, you think, man, this is a good bag, this is good, everything's going well, it's really comfortable. And then you start talking to other Christians. And they say, well, what you've got to do, if you're a Christian, you actually, what you should be doing is reading your Bible. And you think, well, okay, I should do that. Because God speaks through his word. I actually like the Bible. So, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible. And then, and then that, you go, okay, that, that's cool. And then someone says to you, okay, if you want to be a Christian, what you've got to do is pray every day. That's what you've got to do. You've got to pray every day. You go, okay. Well, God is there. I want to speak to me. Okay, that, that's fine. Okay, I'm going to put that in my Christian bag. Everything's going well. And then someone else, you'll say, well, what you've got to do, you've got to, you've got to serve a church, right? That's what you've got to do. You've got to serve a church and it uh, doesn't matter. You've just got to say, okay, you go, look, I love my church. I want to serve. So I'm going to do that. So I'm going to put that in there and it's getting a bit heavy, but that's okay. Uh, and then, then you're walking along as a Christian. Then someone says, actually... Now that you're a Christian, what you can't do, you can't like certain movie shows or songs. And so you've got to actually get rid of those things and go, oh, really like some of those. Okay, but, but, but I get it. Okay, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going to, okay, I'll put that in there. And I'll, oh, it's getting heavy now. And then you're walking along and then someone else says, actually, what you've got to do to be a really good Christian is you've got to listen to Christian music. That's what you've got to do. And you think, well, the problem with Christian music, I don't know if you know this, the problem with Christian music is 50% of it isn't Christian and the 50, other 50% is not music. But okay, okay, I'll start, I'll start, put that in, it's getting really heavy now. And then, and then what you've got to do, what you've got to do to be a good Christian is to, you've got to go to Christian conferences. That's what you've got to do, you've got to, if there's one on, you've got to go, and, and you've got to go to six or seven a year, because, you know, that's what the real hardcore Christians, do. oh man, it's real. And then you've got to, even if you don't read, You've got to read Christian books. Big, thick ones like this. You've got to read Christian books. And then what happens is you get this bag of stuff and Christianity becomes burdensome. Because what has happened is you just feel like you've got to do stuff and do stuff and do stuff and do stuff. But what, what's implied is I'm doing all this stuff to be accepted. But it feels burdensome. Because you feel like I've got to do more and more and more for God to accept me and love me. So one or two things happen. Either you carry this around and you live with this kind of exhausting low-level guilt, or actually you just ditch Christianity altogether. Because actually, I can't live with that. I can't live with this idea that says, I've got to do all these things and then God will accept me. But if you believe that, and we all believe that to a certain extent, at some point that we've got to do all these things, then God will love me. Can I just direct you to verses 1 and 2 again? That God saves Israel first and then says, obey. And when it comes to the gospel, Jesus died for you. And then he says, obey. If you read Paul's letters, he says, here's what Jesus has done for you. Therefore, live like this. 
2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he says, God has been generous to you in sending Jesus to die for you. Therefore, be generous with your money. He doesn't say be generous with your money, then Jesus will love you. It's very different. It's very different. See, the gospel is not, I obey to be accepted. The gospel is, I am accepted by Jesus and his death on the cross for me. Therefore, I obey. And therefore, your obedience is not something that you do it with teeth that are clenched. It's not like when I ask my kids to set the table, that they obey, but they let me know that they don't want to obey. No, our obedience, because God has saved us, is one of thankfulness and joy. Can you see the difference the gospel makes? Who is God and what has he done? Well, he has saved the Israelites, he has saved you, and he has saved me. He is the God who speaks. So who should we be? Well, the first thing is we should be people who love the Lord our God or love the Lord your God. Have a look at verse 3. He says this, You shall have no other gods before me because I am the God who has spoken, because I am the God that saved. You should have no other gods, just me. Verse 4, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath for the To the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, neither your son nor your, sorry, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Four things. Because God has saved you, that you've now got a relationship with God. And what does that look like? Well, only love God. No other God. And see, what you've got to realize is that there, there were so many gods around them for them to love. Gods who were much more fun than the God of the Bible, to be honest. And God says, no, they are not really gods. I'm the only God that has actually saved you. The Bible does mention other gods. They mention Baal and Ashtoreth and all, all, all all these other gods. But what's interesting about the Bible is that those gods never do anything or never say anything. The whole point of that is to say these gods don't actually exist. But I wonder if you saw verse 4 there, uh, verse 4 and 5, there's a word there that's very, very interesting. Have a look at verse 4 again. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below. 
or in the world waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That word jealous just strikes me as odd, doesn't it? Here's why. Isn't jealousy bad? I, I mean, don't we read in the Bible how we should not be jealous? There's actually laws in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that says, hey, you shouldn't be jealous. And don't we tell our kids, hey, you shouldn't be jealous, but you should share. So what's going on here? What we've got to realise is that there's bad jealousy that we normally engage with. And then there's good jealousy. It, there's bad jealousy where, I and mean, you see this in kids all the time, when, when someone, one of your kids has got something and the other one wants it and they're jealous. That is bad jealousy. But then there's the jealousy of a husband or wife for each other. That because of this covenant relationship that they are in, they are jealous for the other one's affection. And they don't want that affection to be given to anyone else. That is good jealousy. And when God talks about his relationship with Israel, he actually uses the metaphor a lot of the time of a husband with a wife. He is saying, I am jealous for you because I have poured out my love on you. I have saved you. And therefore, to, to go out to other gods is to actually reject me. I am jealous for your love because of what I've done for you. Now, one of the things as we read this, we, we go, well, uh, isn't it good that we live in a world with no idols? I mean, in the West, you know, we, we might be able to go to a temple or something. But, but really, there's no idols. But notice what could be in an idol, or could be an idol. Have a look at verse 4 again. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Talks about you shall not make an image of anything. But did you also notice that that image can come from anywhere? The heavens above, the earth or the waters. The implication is anything can be an idol. What is an idol? An idol is something that you love more than God and you put at the center of your life. See, what God is saying here is you've got to love me more than anything. You've got to put me first. And he therefore says one of the ways you show that is not loving anything more than me. Not finding your happiness in anything other than me. And when you think about that, we live in a culture that's chock full of idols, don't we? Our world and our hearts and our brains are idol-making factories. One of the scariest things about idolatry is that very, very good things can become idols. And usually the idols that I see in my life and other people's are good things. So some of us have got kids. And yet you know as well as I do that our 
kids can become an idol. That we want the best for our kids, which is a good thing. But we will sacrifice everything so that they can have the life that we didn't have. I will sacrifice my time. I will sacrifice even my faith. I will even miss church so that I can take my kid to that party. I will miss growth group because I am taking my kids to another practice session or I'm taking my kid to this or that. Good things, our children can become idols. Or think about our jobs. Our jobs can so consume us, even though our work is a good thing, our, work, our jobs can so consume us and so wipe us out that we haven't got time to read our Bible or pray. We haven't got time to do devotions with our kids. We haven't got time actually to serve at church. We don't have time. We're actually too exhausted to go to growth group and that kind of thing. And what's happened there? Our job has become an idol. Even ministry can become an idol. At my previous church, in the first year when we planted, we had a bunch of um, pastor's kids who were adults, the, you know, the adults of pastor's kids. And can I just say, some of the most screwed up people I've ever met are the children of pastors. So please pray for my kids and Tim's kids and that kind of thing. We're trying to do everything so that doesn't affect our kids, but it's a tough gig that they didn't sign up for. I can remember talking to one guy and I said, what, what was it like being a pastor's kid? And he said, um, my father had an affair. And I, I said, I'm sorry, I, 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 didn't, I don't know what to say, but he kind of interrupted me. He goes, yes, my dad was married to the church and he had an affair with my mum. And that guy's no longer a Christian. Why? Because his dad took his ministry and made it everything. It's ironic that he loved his ministry more than God because if he loved God, he would actually love his family. When you have a look at your life, I wonder what your priorities are. Here's how I think you can see what your priorities are. Have a look at verse 8. He says, God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The whole point is you're meant to work for six days and have one day off. Have a day of rest. What does rest mean? It means, and I asked my doctor this, he said, what is rest? I said, what's rest? He said that you're not racing from one thing to another. You're actually chilling out. Your blood pressure goes down. Your heart rate goes down. Your your adrenaline gets reset. Rest. Chilling. But we live in a culture that is pathologically averse to rest. We're going and going and going and going and going and going and yet we don't rest. Now, the, the New Testament says that our Sabbath rest is in Jesus. Jesus did work on the Sabbath, right? But here's what I see. 
I think what we've got to ask is this. What is keeping me from rest? I wonder if our work is keeping us from rest or our children are keeping us from rest or whatever. If God says, I rested on the seventh day and you should too rest, well, taking a day of rest is actually a good thing for us. God has woven it into our being. And if something is getting in the way of our rest, isn't that one thing maybe an idol? The whole point of the Sabbath was you're meant to rest, but you're also meant to worship. And I think if there is, if there is something that is taking us away from worship, isn't that an idol? If we're meant to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul, what does that mean? He is first in everything. Is he first in your life? Because when Jesus died, he put himself second for you. He died for you. He gave up his life for you. And so therefore, in response to that, we're meant to love him with all our heart and all our soul. But, but here's the second list of commands or the second group of, of words from God. What are we meant to be? We are meant to be people who love our neighbor as ourselves. And can I just say, most of these are, are self-explanatory, aren't they? But verse 13, you shall not murder. Okay, that's, I guess, pretty easy. You shall not commit adultery. It's pretty easy not to commit, just don't sleep with someone you're not married to. Don't steal, okay. Don't tell lies. But then verse 17 gets really weird. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What, what, what shifts here is that we see that these things are actually about the heart. Because coveting is a thing of the heart. It is saying, if I had that, I would be happy. If I, if I had my neighbor's house or if I, if I had my neighbor's wife or husband because they're obviously a better husband than, well, or wife than I've got, then I would be happy. And God says, no, why? Because your heart is meant to be content in me. So, see, what God is going for here is not the outside things, but internally. And when we get to Jesus, Jesus actually says it's actually about the heart. You can have everything going right on the outside and still have a heart that is uh, antithetical to what God would ha- how, how God would have you live. In Matthew 5, here's what Jesus says about murder. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But a- and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is saying the the command not to murder starts with a heart that is angry. And so, who should you be? You should be a person who loves your neighbour, prays for your enemy, and wants to do that, or, 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 or adultery. 
Jesus says, once again in Matthew 5, you have heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see that Jesus is saying, I don't want just a changed outside. Because of what I've done, I want your heart to be changed. Jesus says that you can be a person who never murders, never commits adultery, but has a heart full of lust and hatred. And therefore, you're not living as God would have you live. So it's a bit like this. I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but this has happened to me a few times. Have you ever picked up an apple? And you thought, man, this is going to be a good apple. It's shiny, it's bright, it's beautiful. You take a bite and it kind of tastes a bit weird. And then you look down and the core is rotten. And what do you do? You go, oh, no, that's a great apple. I'll eat the rest. No, what you do is you throw that away because it's rotten to the core. It it looks okay on the outside, but the heart of it is rotten. And Jesus is saying this that I am so concerned about your heart. And if you read the book of Exodus and the laws there, and even the book of Leviticus, it's all about, hey, this is the people that I want you to be. It starts with the heart. Loving your neighbor as yourself means that it's it's not just you don't murder, but you do positive for them. It is you set up your life to love your enemy. If, if you love the Lord Jesus, it's not just that you will not sleep with someone who's, who you're not married to. It is that you will set up your life so that you will think only pure thoughts for everyone. See, loving others as yourself means that you... Yes, you won't lie, but you'll also speak the truth in love. Loving others as yourselves means not just that you won't steal, but you will be content with what you have, what God has given you. Can you see how radical Jesus is? Jesus just doesn't want the externals. He wants your heart to be changed. He wants you to be a different person. Jesus is saying, you and I need new hearts. But here's the good news, and here's why Jesus being God is so important. I hear a lot of people say, well, Jesus is just a great teacher. I'm doing an ancient history course, a couple of ancient history courses at uni. And it was interesting. We started talking about Jesus, and it was interesting. Everyone started talking about how, um, how Jesus was just a good teacher. And uh, one of, the, one of the, the girls in the class, she's a Christian, she knows I'm a Christian, and she said, I would love to ask Hans what he thinks about that. And I was like, oh, thank you, I'm trying to fly below the radar. And I said, the problem with, if Jesus is just a good teacher and he's not God who dies on the cross for my sin and rises for my justification, if he's just a good teacher, his teachings will crush me. His teachings will crush me. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. How, uh, do that perfectly. If you try to do that, you'll be exhausted. You'll be crushed because actually you're not perfect. So, so you need Jesus not just to be a good teacher, but you need Jesus to be God who deals with all the times when you don't love your neighbor as yourself. 
You need Jesus to deal with the times when you don't honour your parents, when you're angry with someone else in a way that is so, so just wrong, when you lust after someone else, when you lie, when you covet something else, when you think, if only I had that, I'd be happy. You need Jesus to die for you and you need a new heart. When God puts the Ten Commandments in the, in the ears of the Israelites, he's saying, I just don't want you to be a special people who do things. I want you to be a new people from the heart out. When you really get what, what God is saying here and what Jesus says, you realise that when you look at yourself, or I look at myself, I don't measure up. And that's kind of the point. We're meant to hear God's word and say, I don't measure up. And that's why I need Jesus. Nathan Cole, a man who was barely literate, in 1740 heard the preaching of George Whitfield. And here's what he says in his diary. My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. I pray today that as we've looked at God's word, he, the Spirit has given you a heart wound and that you have realized that your goodness won't save you. And that's why Jesus died for you. To, so that he would deal with your sin. He would give you a new heart so that in his power you can live for him by loving him more than anything else and loving your neighbour as yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you that you are the God who, who clearly tells us how we are to live but Lord, that you are gracious. Thank you that you are not the God who, who just says, here's the bar, but says, hey, when you don't clear it, I'm going to still love you. I'm going to forgive you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us for the times that we don't obey you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us so that we would have a new heart. Lord, in response to what you have done for us, we pray that you would empower us to love our neighbours as ourselves and to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been reminded about what Jesus has done,